Hello, my name is Dustin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And make sure to dim the lights for this one. Yeah, better keep better, better keep the kids out of your earbuds for yep. this one. Because we're going to use probably some dirty language. We're going to go blue because we're talking about writer, director, editor, artist Gerard Damiano. Director of Deep, Deep Throat. Throat. Now, I remember when Gerard Damiano died... In, on Weekend Update that week on SNL, Seth Meyers delivered a joke where he said, Gerard Damiano, the pioneering porn director of Deep Throat, died this week at age 80. Of course, Deep Throat is primarily remembered as being well-directed. Boo! Sort of garbage on the TV. I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Deep Throat's not a very good movie, but what Seth Meyers, of course, didn't understand... Perhaps he would have understood. If he had watched Gerard Damiano's filmography. If he had, you know, dug into his local porn store and found the shitty sourced from an old VHS DVD of Memories Within Miss Aggie. Which has an insane cover that we're going to get into when we talk about the movie. (laughs) Maybe he would have known that beneath Gerard Damiano's exterior lay the soul of an artist. But first, we got to talk about Deep Throat. This is the film that blew up the feature-length porn scene. It was a cause célèbre. It uh, resulted in a bunch of insane court cases. And it is what defined Gerard Damiano. Like you mentioned, the week that he died, every obituary just mentioned pornographer, Deep Throat. Mm -hmm. None of the other movies that he made. And he made a lot. And a lot of them, he would probably admit himself, Not that good, but a lot of them that he did put his heart and soul into. Because what you got to know about Gerard Damiano is that he's a guy that wanted to be a filmmaker first and foremost. It wasn't about pornography. Pornography was just a means to an end. He hoped that somewhere along the lines, either pornography and mainstream Hollywood would merge, Mm -hmm. which crazily enough did not seem like such a strange thought at the time. Well, when Deep Throat is as big a hit as it is, and he's hanging out with celebrities, everyone's talking about it, in his mind, he expected that the porns to get bigger and bigger budgets, and that the line to blur between what is Hollywood and what has hardcore in it. It is important to remember that Deep Throat came out the same year as Last Tango in Paris. This was just a few years after the end of the old Hollywood. Movies like Carnal Knowledge, Barbarella, I don't Mm. know, whatever the sexy movies of the time were. Like, this was part of that ecosystem. Yeah. And Deep Throat, while it had that little moment in the sun, it also resulted in a massive legal challenge. Well, yeah, it was. There were a lot of reasons why it became the the movie that it became. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it was, I mean, one of its innovations was that it actually probably was the best porno movie that had been made up to that point. And you got to understand that Deep Throat is a movie, like we said, not very good. Very goofy, and some people would say that that goofiness is what made it attractive and interesting, because porn before then was most often stag loops. Yeah. Little loops of people having sex with each other that you would watch and pleasure yourself to and then move on. At a fraternity mm-hmm. uh, party or, or a bachelor <laughs> party or something like that. But only around 1970, after obscenity was redefined as something was obscene, according to the Supreme Court, if it was wholly without socially redeeming value and you know if it's wholly without it mm. I, mean, I mean you know deep throat has a story yeah that's right therefore is it is it wholly without socially redeeming value perhaps but you know what we'll prosecute it anyway well so it probably was you know in the upper echelon of porn movies that had come out 
up till that time because it had a story, sort mm. of, and it had humor, and yes. it looked sort of like a real movie, yep. and it had acting. Shot in seven days. Yeah, on 35 millimeter film. Which porn were never shot on. Yeah. <laughs> in and, color. Yeah. You know, it got a rave review from Al Goldstein. Yep. 100% on the Peter meter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the only rating system I trust. Yeah, that's right. I have an old issue of Screw Magazine where he reviewed El Topo with a Peter Meter. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> anyway, word started to get around and, you know, the movie was being advertised and like people were going to see it. And so it had that title too. Yes. Hard to discount how important that title was. Yep. And so the police tried to make an example out of it. They prosecuted it. It was actually found obscene in New York, so it may actually still be illegal to be shown in New York. I I think that's one of the rules that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, technically the same laws that were used to prosecute it are still on the books and could be brought against any pornography if some prosecutor wanted to go after it. Well, because uh, in 1973... Uh, the Supreme Court redefined obscenity to community standards. Specific communities in the United States could rule what was obscene according to their community standards. Uh, yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Sure. Whatever. Um, Dude, nobody fucks. Yeah. Which nobody is, does. Which is why they tried to prosecute it in Memphis. Yes, <laughs> anyway, that's right. But but that's a, a long and complicated story. Yes, that's a whole other episode. We would recommend checking out the uh, episode of the Rialto Report on Deep Throat, where they get into mm-hmm. that in detail. But as the director of Deep Throat, Gerard. Damiano got a little bit of clout. Not that much clout, but the rules of pornography hadn't been completely written yet. And we should point out something very important about Gerard Damiano's career is that he made films that were massive hits and he got no money from them. He was supposed to be a one-third partner Mm -hmm. in Deep Throat and the other people who funded the movie were... um, Criminals. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don't don't shake your hand in the air. Shady people. And when a journalist asked him, well, why did you sign over your share for $20,000? The movie's made millions. Wasn't that kind of a bad deal? He said, listen, do you want me to have my legs broken? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) or um, be thrown in a lake somewhere in the back of a trunk. And this basically happened over and over again because who was funding these movies? Gangsters, yeah. Shady people. It was the only way that he could get his movies made was by working with shady people, and then the shady people would backstab him. And it's the classic problem of, okay, I made a hit, and then the next movie I have to make a hit with less resources. Yeah, and somewhere along the line he thought, well one of these movies is going to elevate me to Hollywood. I am going to be discovered and found as the genius that I am. And Gerard Damiano, he got started not as a filmmaker. He didn't come out of like school being, I want to make movies. He actually started as a hairdresser (laughs) and owned a hair salon. And then through his accountant, he ended up working on pornography films because this was a way to get into the industry. It's important to know that Gerard Damiano lived and worked in New York. He didn't live in LA. He worked in New York, which was a top for film town. Mm-hmm. And it was also the mecca of porn yes. in the early 70s. Like, that's where you could make movies and that's where they played, because they played at grindhouses. And, you know, many filmmakers who uh, became prominent worked in porn in some capacity. Wes Craven, of course, yep. Abel Ferrara. But because Deep Throat was such a massive hit, Gerard Damiano did not have that luxury of someone like Radley Metzger, who wasn't in the spotlight, I feel, like Gerard Damiano was. Well, Radley Metzger changed his name, too. He went mm-hmm. by Henry Paris. He did. And he also, uh, Radley Metzger had a whole canon of movies that he made that were softcore or mm-hmm. were ab- above ground, respectable movies in some way. And Gerard Damiano never had that. He made one straight film for the same... Um, Less than legal people who funded Deep Throat called Legacy of Satan, and it's not good. Mm. If 
like it's unfortunate because I feel a lot of people who are interested in his career go to that movie first because like oh I'll start with the straight one and it looks like what a porn director would make if he made a straight picture very claustrophobic the camera doesn't move very much uh, the story is very all over the place another barrier I think to appreciating Gerard Damiano as a filmmaker is that he is a porn filmmaker and his movies like I think with Radley Mesker you can watch something like the opening of Misty Beethoven and there's something in Radley Metzger, I think, where he sort of almost keeps a distance from the sex. Mm, I would almost Maybe, say that, like, like in Misty yeah. Beethoven, the sex is very kind of matter of fact, yeah. as if, like, he's showing you it, and then he wants to just move past it. But it's still pretty lengthy. I guess so. But, like, Misty Beethoven has so many scenes of, yeah. like, you know, people dressed in fine Oscar Wilde clothing as as they're getting their dick sucked, basically. <laughs> but, like, if you look at a film like um, Gerard Damiano's uh, The Story of Joanna from 1975, like, I think that is probably his best constructed film Mm. and the pornography in that he is very meticulous with it it's not like all right let me get the low angle of it going in let me get the side angle like he's Mm. trying to tell a story Mm. through these sex scenes which are still hardcore and very lengthy and like i think you've got to in some way in approaching him i mean it's difficult to talk about pornography in critical terms Mm. right because uh, uh, you know, you're gonna <laughs> Does be, it get you horny? Well, you know, Al Goldstein's got a point when he writes things on the Peter Media. Yeah. I mean, these movies are intended to arouse you. And oftentimes his aesthetics are working in that service. So maybe we should talk a little bit about his big follow-up, not his immediate follow-up, mm. but his next major movie after Deep Throat, The Devil and Miss Jones. And this is the other like big hit that Gerard Damiano made. And it, it, it'd be funny that like at this point, I feel like, the sky was the limit for him because, like, you do Deep Throat, huge hit. Devil and Miss Jones, huge hit. And then the next movies that he goes, none of them were really hits. Yeah. And for reasons that we'll talk about. But The Devil in Miss Jones, I feel like if you're talking about someone like Gerard Damiano, this is the movie people picture, which is essentially just a series of sex scenes. Mm-hmm. While his other pictures have stories mm-hmm. and he's trying to, like, kind of modulate it, Devil in Miss Jones is just, like, a tableau of weird sex. Well, it's an evolution from Deep Throat. You can see him experimenting and mm-hmm. you can see him like, it's like a, a stepping stone to where he would well, later go. In it's his, his adaptation of Sartre's No Exit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a very loose adaptation, I think yeah. it's fair to say. And, but I think there's some artistry in this film. It Well, it stars Georgina Spelvin, who was 36 at the time, mm-hmm. so a little uh, older than your typical porn star. Which seems to be the trend with most of the uh, Damiano films that we watched. He really liked the idea of the girl next door. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that translated to somebody a Linda little bit older. Lovelace. O- yeah, exactly. Like that too. A little bit older than you would expect in porn films. And it's also a lot of his stars were people that had never done pornography up until then and never did anything after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the star of Memories Within Miss Aggie. Georgina Spelvin, though, of course, became sort mm-hmm. of the original MILF. Yeah, she um, did. <laughs> uh, but she plays a lonely spinster who decides to take her own life. And the first uh, five minutes or so of the movie are were often remarked upon in reviews at the time. There's a three-star review from Roger Ebert, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, De- Devil and Miss Jones was actually like pretty well-received by yeah. mainstream critics when it I came mean, out. I mean, those first five minutes is a woman completely like lost in life so she sits in a bathtub and graphically slits her wrist you know there's no sex in those first few minutes and it's very moodily shot Mm -hmm. and moodily scored and uh, it's sort of announcing itself from the get-go, this is a serious film. Yeah. This is a real, this is art, This is not just porn, it's and, art. And then smash cut to hell, and man, the sex of time starts. Well, uh, we're in hell, and it's upstate somewhere. Yeah. But it's quite well shot. <laughs> yep. Very soft lighting, and she is told by 
you know, whoever whoever is at this way station between Earth and Hell, it's it's like a purgatorial state. He says, well, unfortunately, on a technicality, you have to go to Hell because you killed yourself, mm-hmm. even though you've never sinned. And she said, well, shucks. I mean, if I'm going to go to Hell, I sure want to I want to go for a reason. Mm. I mean, I would love to have let's just give me 30 days of utter decadence. And he says, you know what? I think we can arrange that. <laughs> yeah. And the movie, I would say. Uh, it's not just one sex scene after another because there is an escalation. Yes. Right? I mean, so it is one sex scene after the other, but escalating sex scenes because man at the end, there's a snake. (laughs) (laughs) There's a snake. There is, well, I mean, it starts with her being, being, trained or initiated mm. into this life of decadence by Harry Reams yep. playing some sort of figure some spiritual guy and uh, there's there's lesbianism there's masturbation um, oh well I'm not going to say every act <laughs> yeah. every act that's in the listen movie. we don't want to rate this podcast on the Peter meter you got to tame that stuff down but folks let's just say it gets more extreme as it goes along <laughs> Uh, and then finally, she you know she starts as a spinster and she ends as a very sort of hard, tough woman. And then she ends up in a bare white room with who is it? Gerard Damiano giving one of his customary Hitchcock style cameos. And as I was watching this movie, you know, with my one free hand. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, serious, serious. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're right, serious. Uh, but I actually do think this is kind of a good movie because. Um, Georgina Spelvin is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she she plays both poles of the character well. The, yes. the spinster and the hard When woman. you see her at the beginning, right before she commits suicide, mm-hmm. you could not imagine this person doing hardcore sex scenes. Yeah, exactly. And when I say that uh, Damiano's aesthetics are in service of the erotica, I mean, there are a lot of scenes... If we're talking about why Georgina Spelvin is good in the movie, it's because she seems very fully committed mm-hmm. to, to the sex scenes and the masturbation yes. scenes, right? Like she's, she's really in it and you can, the, the escalation becomes more and more intense as it goes along. Mm-hmm. So, um, 85% on the Peter meter. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's my opinion. So what, what would you rate his, um, I don't think it was his follow up, but it was made very close to it. Memories within Miss Aggie. Yes. Well, this is a really interesting movie and vinegar syndrome has just put this out on a restored Blu-ray. It looks beautiful. I remember renting this movie from suspect video yes. many years ago. Did it have the absurd cover that you sent me? It did. The cover is just like this generic orgy shot. Mm -hmm. And the movie is a depressing Bergman-like tale (laughs) into a woman's repressed sexuality. So it's 75 minutes long and it has three sex scenes. Yes. The last 20 minutes of the movie, there's no sex at all. No. I mean, I wonder what was... The audience at the porn theaters who were watching this, what what did they make of this movie? And, I mean, especially how it ends. Uh, we're going to... I think we need to spoil it because we need to talk about what it is. Okay, yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter because you should still see it anyway. So the story is about a woman who lives in a cabin in the woods, some snowy place, some mm-hmm. desolate place, with her husband, who seems not quite there. Hmm, and she's going... Interesting. She's going through... Her kind of sexual adventures, explaining it to him. Her erotic memories, because she's now at this point where she and her husband are very frigid together. Mm. Um, And they look old as well. They're not like young, sexy people. Yeah, and it's like, how did we get to this point? And she has three separate flashbacks, remembering three different versions of herself. And she's played by three different actresses. And Mm -hmm. the husband is played by three different actors. Yes. uh, Including Harry Reams. Yep. Ah, Mr. I don't believe he has a mustache in this one, does he? He he does. Oh, he does? Okay. The classic Reams mustache. Um, 
So, so each of these sex scenes, which are very sort of softly and tenderly shown, mm-hmm. illuminate a different facet of her personality. And then finally, there's a fourth flashback where you find out what actually happened. Yeah. So each sex scene, like you said, is a different actor and a different personality and a different idea of what sex can be. So it'll be like, oh, her while she's young and she meets a delivery man or her as the kind of veteran uh, prostitute who meets, um, you know, a John. And so you get all these different attributes of her while the movie's telling you like, no, this is not what happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, Damiano does it all through his direction, whether it be like a camera move or her looking at herself in the mirror and it cross cutting. Like he came to make this movie like, like I want to make a real movie. And he succeeds in making that real movie. And tonally, it's quite different from The Devil and Miss Jones because Mm. The Devil and Miss Jones gets, you know, progressively hotter, if you will, as it goes along. Yes, this one does not get progressively hotter. I I mean, there are scenes in the movie that are sort of tender and soft, and I I suppose you could masturbate to parts of it if you wanted to. But then there's Um, um, a shock cut of violence near the end of the film. Yeah, there's some Fulci stuff (laughs) uh, towards the end. And the whole movie just generally, like... You know, it'll have sort of individual erotic moments, but there's no... It doesn't exactly cast that sort of a spell, does no. it? It's if, very moody. If anything, it gives you that eroticism to pull you back yeah. to the desolation of what her actual life is. Yeah, it, it's it's a cold and sad movie uh, right up to the final twist. Yes. I mean, this is a movie that when it came out, if you search uh, Gerard Damiano, one of the first articles is an interview he did with Roger Ebert at the time of its release. Mm-hmm. Like you could feel that he felt that he was like going up the stairs and he's going up to the next level. And you know, in that interview with Roger Ebert, he is quite dismissive of porn as a genre. Mm. He says something like, well, the only thing that's kept porn going on this long is all the censorship. People, you know, people want to giggle. They want to do something naughty and they want to do something against authority. But I frankly don't think sex looks all that interesting on screen. Yeah. And, Something in Damiano's movies, if you watch a bunch of them, is you can see him trying to find ways to make sex look interesting. Well, one of the ways that he approaches it is from a thematic angle. Like, a lot of his movies deal with the idea of what is sex and what is love. And Mm -hmm. the characters themselves are continually discussing this, like in his best movie. The Story of Joanna. Which came out in 1975 and starred Jamie Gillis, who is, Uh, you know, porn god number one. From Misty Beethoven, of course, yeah. And also has uh, Terry Hall as the main... uh, Um, woman in the film. Now, so Damiano wanted to adapt the story of O, which had come out in the 50s, and there was no way he was going to get the rights, so he basically did his own adaptation. Yeah, it's a a BDSM story where Jamie Gillis plays this uh, very sophisticated and emotionally austere millionaire Mm -hmm. very very dashing dark figure a real uh 50 shades of gray kind of guy yeah that's right that's exactly what the movie is and uh, one day he's out at a swanky hotel bar uh, where in fact you can see gerard damiano at the bar giving his (laughs) customer cameo (laughs) yep and he notices this fetching young woman come in, and he knows this is a woman that I can possess. Yeah. And so he invites her over to his palatial manor, and he decides to take her under his wing for a progressing series of uh, educations, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's that kind of a story. Yes, but it is beautifully shot, uh, beautifully paced as well. I mean, I would really love to see this movie on a restored version because the version I watched on TubePornClassics.com... Yep. Uh, it was. I believe you watched the widescreen version, right? I watched full the full screen. Okay, so right. you watched the version that's actually in the right order because a company named Alpha Blue put it out on DVD and they got the reels in the wrong Ugh. order. So, come, I mean, this is the 
Other than vinegar syndrome and people like distrib pics, that's usually the treatment that uh, pornography gets, right? Well, it's it's tragic because, I mean, it is a beautifully shot movie. And, you know, if you were being uncharitable to Damiano, you would say it's his most pretentious movie. Yes. Um, and It is. It is. I mean, there's that dance ballet sequence. Great sequence. I, I love it, too. Yeah. I, I mean, there's this part of me when I'm, I'm watching this movie and I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm chuckling a bit throughout yeah. because I'm like... I'm like, wow, you're really you're really going for the high art thing. Yeah, because there's this long. Um, it's not even a nude ballet because the ballet dancers are wearing um, lower pieces, but the tops are naked, mm-hmm. and it's this lengthy, unironic, doesn't end with sex ballet mm-hmm. number of just um, dead serious, dead serious, mm-hmm. and kind of beautiful. Yeah, I mean the whole yeah. film is layered with needle drops of classical music. Well, how about that one sex scene where it's all like very extreme close-ups yes. of, of the organs as they're going in in a way that you usually don't see. No, sex not your shot. typical extreme close-ups. Yeah, and this is a film as well that also dips into um, gay uh, matter oh, right yes. at the end. Well, I mean, from what I understand. Outside of New York, it was just never seen. Like no, the project- there's no the projectionists would just cut it out. Yeah, that's right. But, but you can see Damiano. The story he wants to tell is very clear in his mind. This is not something to layer on a bunch of sex scenes mm-hmm. on. And he doesn't even just shoot them competently. I think he shoots them very well. Mm-hmm. Like, even during, like, a normal hardcore sex scene, there'll be, like, a dolly move across because he's mm-hmm. trying to give some visual information that you wouldn't know. A lot of his sex scenes in his best movies are also defining the characters. The way that they're mm-hmm. reacting in the sex scene mm-hmm. actually matters within the plot. And again, that scene with the extreme close-ups, mm-hmm. you can sense him being kind of like, I'm bored with shooting sex. Yes. What's a new way to do it? I mean, the film's big emotional climax of um, the story of Joanna is the woman having her hair cut Mm. and he shoots it like it is the worst thing ever even though at this point like orgies have happened and other things like that but it's all about identity and what sex actually means to a couple or the individual Mm -hmm. and i think that's really fascinating and it sucks that you can only see it in the worst possible version that's too bad i hope we get something uh, better i mean i think that vinegar syndrome is digging into that damiano catalog because uh, they're also going to release the film that's probably his most famous one after the story of joanna let my puppets come well that's his all puppet porn movie <laughs> yes uh, wait do they have real dicks right well, no, they it, just it's, felt dicks? it's puppet dicks. Yeah, okay. there's no actual sex in Let My Puppets Come. I mean, there are two different strands. I, well, there are a few different strands of mm-hmm. his career, but the two big ones are there are these very moody, dark, depressing movies that he made. And then there are the extremely goofy movies that he mm-hmm. made, like Let My Puppets Come. Yes. Which there's no human sex in it. No, just puppets. It's all puppets, except I think Al Goldstein makes a cameo. <laughs> Um, but aside, yeah, aside from that, it's all puppets. It's long been available only in a 45 minute version, but Vinegar Syndrome has just found the 75 minute version. And I gotta tell you, I was, I've never wanted it to be longer than 45 minutes. You <laughs> but maybe the good stuff is there. That'll structurally maybe. explain everything I else mean, going I've on. I mean, I pre-ordered the Blu-ray, of course, because you have to support this. I things. mean, Vinegar Syndrome also put out Skin Flicks, one that is not mm-hmm. often mentioned in his filmography. Because the thing about Gerard Damiano is he made so many films and a lot of them are just not available. Like, he talks about... Have you seen Portrait that he made? I've seen a sh- very shitty version of Portrait. Yeah. yeah. I don't think the elements exist anymore, probably. No, I mean, a lot of the films, the elements just don't exist. So but, you can see it on a VHS rep. Mm-hmm, but he's, like, for a period in his career, he is experimenting and doing different things. I saw... I watched one this week in an actually a pretty good version called Odyssey, The Ultimate Trip, mm-hmm. which is... You know, maybe his most pretentious movie. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's a th- like a three-part movie where, like, in the opening credits, it says, 
in the beginning you are born in the end you die in between is life <laughs> and so it's it's three different you know the yeah. beginning life uh, and the end and there are a lot of like really weird psychedelic dream sequences people wearing strange masks but i could see where damiano is coming from right because mm-hmm. he did the goofy comedy stuff with deep throat mm-hmm. people kind of took him seriously but they didn't take him seriously as a filmmaker yeah so he wants to go to the other extreme like he sees all these art house people essentially making hardcore films and getting respect and reviews for it so he's like okay i'm gonna push myself as far as i can and hopefully get that respect but he never did because that deep throat anchors around his neck i hasten to add that i sort of admire odyssey Mm -hmm. i mean i mean you gotta hand it to him he really went for it (laughs) i mean (laughs) but skin flicks yeah skin flick is his day for night essentially because it is about a uh, porn director who's trying to make a porno film and having difficulty doing it and he's got this mob boss who's financing it played Played by by gerard damiano Damiano. and gerard damiano there is no more convincing mob boss ever in a movie (laughs) even though that gerard damiano himself was not involved in the mob in the way certain um biopics would um suggest right because damiano you know he went on record a lot of the time saying listen i took the money and I made the film, but I was not involved in that side of the business. If I was, I would have probably made a lot more money. Well, I know that he there was a, a company, Damiano Pictures. Oh, yeah. Which, when Deep Throat 2, Joe Sarno's movie, Deep Throat 2, mm. came out, it was released as a Damiano Pictures movie. And uh, Gerard Damiano had nothing to do with it. He said he would get checks in the mail that said Damiano Pictures was paying out this much to him. And he's like... What the hell? Well, also, there's the movie Water Power, which is the famous Enema film Mm -hmm. by Sean Costello, which when it was released, it was released with Gerard Damiano's name on it. And when Sean Costello was asked about it, he said, oh, yeah, you know, like the the, the boys downtown, they basically owned Damiano. Like they could put his name on it and he couldn't do anything about it. What a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, like Damiano, like skin flicks. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's a really interesting one. And when you hear about it, you're like, ah, yes, because it did have one of his downer endings. And at this point in his career, the producers are like, all right, cut it out. So the film actually ends very abruptly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you're like, well, what's going on? But like it's. Fascinating in the way that instead of telling like a linear story of making a porn film, you get all these snapshots of people. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Boogie Nights, but without any of the like, wow, we mm-hmm. artifice. And tied together with this story of this frustrated, misunderstood artist who mm-hmm. just wants to make a great porn film. At the same time, you get the story of a actor in pornography who she doesn't mm-hmm. want to like do sex scenes or anything like that on these new films. And then at the end, there's a vicious sexual assault by, by Jamie Gillis. A, yeah. Playing a crazed porn fan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's weird because you feel Damiano is approaching this like he's not trying to make it feel sexy because it's like very in your face. Mm-hmm. But that's why it exists, though. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that weird balancing act, right? He often he there are many different kinds of sex scenes mm-hmm. in his movies. Um, I and another in- interesting thing about Skinflix is it has an actress in it named uh, I think her name is Jill Monroe who was actually trans. Yes, and the movie makes doesn't point it out. Everybody knew she was trans. It was not like a secret or anything but like that. But the viewer does. Doesn't know the viewer doesn't know, yeah. but Damiano knew, and he actually put her in a bunch of movies. Yeah. <laughs> and like people love working with her. I mean, that's the thing when you talk about pornography and the thing that we are somehow 30 minutes into this podcast and have not talked about, which is the stigma that goes around with it, right? Even Deep Throat, the fact that Linda Lovelace was in an abusive relationship with her boyfriend at the time, 
and that you know she wrote a book called Ordeal about mm-hmm. how she was forced into pornography and that they essentially held a gun to her head to make well, these movies. Yeah, that's what she that's what she said in the book. Yeah, and I uh, I think the gun to the head thing, metaphorically uh, I think is yeah. What people but I mean, certainly she was uh, browbeaten and coerced into these films by her boyfriend. Yeah, she was yeah very much abused while she was making yeah. them. But when people talk about Gerard Damiano as a director, they talk about him as a director. He didn't just put the camera down and be like, fuck. Mm-hmm. He would be like, all right, let's rehearse. Let's get, like, chemistry between everybody. He's also, you know, an auteur who has his themes. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the 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 relationship between sex and love that comes up in a lot of his movies. A lot of his movies are weirdly sex negative for porn films. Well, a lot of people said that Damiano believed in love and monogamy. (laughs) Well, and he was also a Catholic. And mm -hmm. so you'll see him interviewed and he would talk a lot about how he grew up thinking oral sex, for instance, was sinful. Yes. Which is hilarious since he made a whole career out of it. But I don't think he believed that while he was making these movies. But his perspective of like love is very interesting. Well, the thing is, if you're raised a Catholic. Yeah, it never goes away. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, those things are stuck in you. So another of his films, uh, The Satisfiers of Alpha Blue, which I think he watched a bit of. I did, yeah. Uh, not, don't need to watch the whole thing, but, but <laughs> certain certain moments. Yeah, I was done after five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, enjoy The Satisfiers of Alpha Blue because I think it's one of his campiest films. Yes, his science fiction picture. <laughs> it's set in a distant future where war, poverty, it's all been... Uh, it's all been eradicated because sex has become extremely heavily regulated. And in fact, sex and love have been completely divorced from each other. You've got these sex workers who, uh, they are the satisfiers of Alpha Blue, and men go to them, men dressed in their kind of thrift store futuristic outfits. As they walk around what looks like um, abandoned construction sites. It was the 1964 World's yep, Fair, That actually. looks yeah. exactly. And the men talking about what is sex, what is love, what well, is the difference? Well, uh, most of the men are like, hey, this is great we fuck all the time yeah but you know arbola aka robert kerman from cannibal holocaust yeah that's right he's the one who has who has a conscience and he likes the things the old way he he wants to have love with his Mm. sex and there's one satisfier who he falls in love with but she is very firmly committed to the satisfier lifestyle Uh, and the movie climaxes with wah, wah. <laughs> uh, figuratively and literally with uh, them having very passionate sex and her realizing <laughs> through the act of sex through the act of sex where well, you just look deep into my eyes she, and she does help. love him yeah one of the funny things about the satisfiers of alpha blue is even though it's one of his most moralistic movies it's dense with sex oh yeah it has so much sex in it (laughs) well there is one more movie that i want to mention that i watched this week called consenting adults which came out i think in 82 a year after satisfiers of alpha blue and it's kind of a mondo style documentary and he made a a, quite a few uh, documentaries like one called changes which is great actually changes is an interesting sort of sexual revolution movie from the late 60s uh but Consenting Adults is hosted by Annie Sprinkle and Veronica Vera, who uh, would later become noted sex educators in addition to being performers. And it's just a series of vignettes um, about their sexy friends and their friends' sexy desires. It's done in a sort of documentary style, but there are things in it like, you know, Annie Sprinkle and one of her friends, it's like, hey, we're going to show you how, what a labia piercing is like. And yeah. You see a labia piercing. Or there's a dominatrix scene with Jill Monroe, mm-hmm. and there are one or two trans performers in the movie. 
the, there's a live sex show. There are a lot of uh, sort of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in a hetero porn film. Yeah. And it's all presented... Matter-of-factly. Well, joyously. Yeah, that's I, what I mean. Like, yeah. it's not it's not like a Mondo documentary, like, look at this! And yeah. then this crazy monkey brain! Yeah. It's like, no, this is, like, good and happy and yeah. enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And this should become a normal part of your life. I mean, that is the thesis of every Damiano film, is, like, he wants this to become mainstream. Yeah. He doesn't want... He wants porn to become mainstream. Yeah. He, he's scared of sex. <laughs> okay. I don't know well, if that's true. Well, I think sometimes he's scared of sex. I <laughs> Maybe. Mean, you know, but he's... I don't think he thinks that it should be banned. Because when you no. say people are scared of sex, you usually think like, oh man, you know, everybody who prosecuted Deep Throat who are probably doing horrible things in basements and not telling <laughs> anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so Damiano's career went the way of every you know, 70s pornographer, which when the 90s and video technology came in, they wanted them quick. They wanted them fast. Damiano prided himself that he never did one day quickies, Mm -hmm. that he would demand at least three days. Yeah. And his son, Gerard Damiano Jr., says in an episode of the Rialto Report, Damiano went up to a producer after making a movie called Splendor in the Ass, (laughs) a great reference to a classic 70s film in the 90s. And uh, he said, what did you think of the movie to the producer? And the producer was like, well, it had beautiful cover art. And he's like, okay, what about the movies? Like, man, those slicks that we sent out, which are like uh, promotional images, they were great. And then Damiano realized the producer did not watch the movie because it didn't matter. As long as they had product to ship out, that's all that mattered. So after making The Naked Goddess 2 in the early 90s, Damiano retired. Mm-hmm. And we listened to his commentary track on The Devil and Miss Jones, in which he's quite downbeat for most of it. Because, I mean, he has good reason to. Well, around the time that he recorded that in, I think, 2008 or so, one of the big porn companies had made sort of a high-ish budget remake of The Devil and Miss Jones. And he was like, I'm not credited on it. I'm yeah. not seeing any money from it. There's you know? a giant billboard. My name's nowhere near it. Yeah. And, you know, the era that he worked in, which is portrayed in Boogie Nights, it was brought up recently by Quentin Tarantino yeah. that the Burt Reynolds character is based on Gerard Damiano. Clearly. And Paul Thomas Anderson said that that is not the case. He's lying. He's lying. <laughs> well, as Tarantino pointed out in that interview, look at him. Yeah. Like, he's got a goatee. He looks, he's dressed like Gerard Damiano was all the time. Yeah. But the issue about that is, and Tarantino brings up an amazing point, and it's sad because a bunch of articles popped up on the web, but he only men- they only mentioned it in terms of him saying something against the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, not actually dealing with the issue that he had, which is in Boogie Nights, Burt Reynolds at one point is watching a movie, this like really goofy, incompetent Mark Wahlberg kind of Kung Fu John Holmes picture. Mm-hmm. And he looks and he's like, oh, wow, it's it feels like a real movie. I think it's the best thing that we ever did. And Tarantino brings up a great point that like, this is based on Gerard Damiano. Damiano wouldn't see something like that and think, oh yeah, this is good. He knows what a good movie is. Right. Obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson loves those characters in Boogie Nights, but like a scene like that insinuates, oh yeah, but they're also idiots. Yeah, and Gerard Damiano's career, it is a minor miracle. Yes. It's like, it shows you that movies like this, at, at one point, movies like Story of Joanna, Memories Within Miss Aggie, Devil and Miss Jones, movies like that could be made. And, and they could be made with passion. Yeah. And somebody wanting it to be something more yeah. than just something that people whacked off to. They could not be made anymore. No. It was just a brief confluence of the circumstance and the man. And Damiano is someone who stands alone in the idea that, like, 
he made only hardcore films. Mm -hmm. While most people like Joe Sarno, who was the Bergman of the softcore and also made hardcore, he had like an early period Mm -hmm. where those were his like Bergman pictures. Damiano, he was in the thick of it. His first like, or it was like a third feature film, but the first like released widely blew up. And he was in hardcore for the rest of his career. So Gerard Damiano is worth discovering. Mm -hmm. He's worth reclaiming. But you got to get down in there in the muck to do it. Yeah. So I would recommend if you really want to get in there, you're going to have to go and watch a crappy version of Story of Joanna. Make sure you don't watch it in widescreen. Number one, that's not the aspect ratio it was shot in. They cropped it on Mm -hmm. the DVD. And number two, like we said, if you're seeing it in widescreen, it's out of order. So it will make no sense. Watch it on (laughs) TubePornClassics.com. Uh, That's my endorsement for a great website. And after that, I would recommend just going to the Vinegar Syndrome releases like uh, Skin Flicks, which looks amazing and has two great commentary tracks on it. But I think especially Memories Within Miss Aggie. Yes. Uh, Uh, Check that one out as well. Yeah. Just Memories Within Miss Aggie. The problem is there's no special features. Oh, yeah. And like these movies, I think context helps them a lot. Because you go in with your own preconceived notions and to be able to learn more about them is the easiest way to appreciate them. I mean, Gerard Damiano doing research on this, it's very difficult to find anything about him beyond a few key articles. Like there's no books written about him, which is nuts to me. Well, I guess I'll have to do it. <laughs> yeah, Will, you're going to have to write the book on Gerard Damiano. It seems like such an easy topic too. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it the way you did the Pune book. <laughs> yeah, perfect. All right. So coming soon, uh, Gerard Damiano by Will Sloan. <laughs> Well, that's it for Gerard Damiano, but we have more content on the Patreon. What did we watch? So this week was uh, the Patreon's choice. We picked the name out of a hat, and the listener asked us to watch The Watermelon Woman. So we checked that movie out. It's a movie that's been on my list a long time, and it's a really uh, fascinating movie, especially if you've never heard about it. So check that out on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. It's $5 a month. You get our entire back catalog and a new episode every week. Well, as I light a cigarette after that vigorous <laughs> Gerard Damiano session. I'm just covered in sweat. Uh, let's cool off with some listener mail. Do we have any letters? Why, yes, we do have letters, Will. And as per usual, you can send us letters. I knew at- we did. Was- <laughs> <laughs> at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. You got to keep this charade going, though, <laughs> to make it work. Our first letter is from Michael Carroll, and it goes, Justin and Will, just heard your discussion of Scorsese's The Irishman and whether you plan on streaming it or seeing it in theaters. Did we talk about that? We well, did. I completely forget what I talk about. Wanted <laughs> you just blank out. Yeah. Like- <laughs> just flush it, you know, yep. out of my mind. Wanted to share one of my favorite experiences seeing a film ever. I went to see The Departed in Midtown Manhattan when it was first released to a packed theater. I'll never forget when Leo DiCaprio stepped off the elevator and got shot in the face in the third act. Whoops, spoiler warning. The theater was completely quiet. Could have heard a pin drop for 5, 10, 15 seconds. Then suddenly, from one of the back rows, a slow applause began. Then one or two more folks started clapping, and then over the dialogue of the film, and to an even more stunned audience, these guys started chanting, fuck the police, for a bit. (laughs) And then it died down. Anyway, love New York City. End of story. Fuck the police. Michael Carroll. I remember that Departed. I know exactly what scene he's talking about. And it did not fail. I must have seen it twice in theaters to generate laughter in the audience. Wait, so in this guy's letter, they were cheering that Leonardo DiCaprio died. died. But I think the specific scene he's talking about, too, is do you remember in the Departed there's a big wide shot where like seven people get killed one after the other without a cut? And it plays comedically because so many people are dying and I remember every screening like you hear just a little bit of laughter which gives permission for everybody else to laugh and start laughing and that made me think like 
Did you ever see any movies that, like, the ending, like, the audience kind of turned against it? Oh, yeah. I can think of two. In a bit that we didn't talk about before. Wink. Uh, hey, hey. <laughs> I'm breaking the magic again. Don't don't be a magician revealing all your tricks yeah. like a regular pen and teller. But you know what? I would say 98% of the time, I usually read the question, and we both stare at each other blankly for maybe two seconds as we try to figure out an answer. That's right. Well, so, I just spontaneously thought up of two examples. Yep. I remember going to see Darren Aronofsky's mother mm. not that long ago and there's a moment towards the end of that movie if you've seen the movie you yes. probably know what it was mm. when it was as if the, all the air got sucked in really the just on a pleasant Saturday afternoon matinee at my local multiplex pretty busy in fact and it was like there was this gasp and you could feel everybody was really not into what had just happened which is weird because at that point the film is I mean that is a very visceral gross scene but the film is so hallucinatory at that point well yeah but there are certain things there are certain lines right that people are not ready to cross that's right and that movie crossed a line for that particular audience and on the way out it was like dead silence it was was like a funeral like the classic James Wan film dead silence (laughs) I was thinking of like movies of reactions like that and all i could think about was movies that like where it ends and the audience is more like angry like what was that that's it i mean you bought up uh salt the angelina jolie film does it end with to be continued it ends basically with a cliffhanger yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh man and um will also brought up but then i stole it from him because i remembered from my childhood the super mario brothers ending where princess is it peach in the movie daisy princess daisy uh kicks open the door and is like mario brothers we need you and they're like yeah and they look at each other and as a kid I was like, wait, is there another Mario Brothers movie? What's going on? I thought the story was done. There could still be. <laughs> yeah, that's Let, right. Let's pick it up. Yeah. If I were an eccentric billionaire, I would do whatever it took. <laughs> like Netflix? Like a long gap Mario Brothers sequel? I would just, I would call up John Leguizamo and I would say, listen, how much does it take? We're making Mario 2. I mean. Biggest problem is that Bob Hoskins is dead. Paul but, Grams. But, but we can write him out. It's <laughs> like, oh, he died in the transition. Oh, yeah. He wasn't a real Mario Brother. Here's your real Mario Brother, who's played by... I don't know, Kevin James? Yeah, sure. Yeah, why don't we just make it an Adam Sandler joint and do it under their contract? Oh, by the way, my other example that I was going to say was War of the Worlds, the Steven Spielberg movie. Yes. When his son reappears at the end, the audience was audibly displeased at the Rainbow Woodbine Cinema in 2005. (laughs) Yep. Because they were like, oh my God, this is... I remember seeing that movie and being like, what? He's alive? (laughs) Like, how could this be true? bullshit. Yeah, Yeah. bullshit. I mean, you can read into Minority Report, oh, it's just a dream. The color scheme changes, but like, it feels like reshoots forced by a studio. Oh, also, uh, seeing Inherent Vice at the Times Square Boxing Day (laughs) show. That's right, you talked about that. (laughs) Was one of the worst movie-going experiences I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I love those, like, big, wide releases. I mean, the same thing with The Witch when it played. Yeah. Remember, there was, like, when I saw it, it was a packed audience, and they did not know what to make of it, and they just left being like what was that i don't get it yeah so you know give the masses marvel movies that's all they want is the answer to this question that's right well thank you very much for sending this letter and as per usual send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com so next week what are we doing will we will be not looking at each other, mm-hmm. which we often do as we record. Instead, we will be looking outside the window. We will be looking at the world around us. Yes, specifically. S- the city around us, Toronto. <gasps> Toronto. 
Toronto, Canada? That's Ontario? Right. That's right. The place that is the home of the important cinema club. Also the place where many movies have been shot and a few movies have been set. And we're actually going to talk about the ones that they're set in Toronto. What does it mean to be set in Toronto, Canadian city? Why aren't there more movies set in Toronto? Considering that in the tax shelter era, everybody shot movies here, but it was always no-name city USA. What are some of the movies we'll be discussing? We're going to be talking, of course, Scott Pilgrim. We're legally obliged to do that if we bring up Toronto on film. If you're a Torontonian who's our age, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, maybe a white male. And all of his friends are in the movie, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, we're also going to be talking about Dom McKellar's Last Night. Oh boy, you can't mention Toronto on film without that one. Mm-hmm. And we'll also be watching a movie that nobody talks about called Rip Off. Even though that it's the sophomore effort of the director of Going Down the Road mm-hmm. and is actually just a teen sex comedy set in Toronto. One that, after I watched it, I actually sent it to my father and said, hey, does this remind you of being a kid? Because it was set in the place where he grew up and it has a very Toronto feel to it all. So... Uh, listen, and then come visit Toronto. Yeah, come visit us. Ho- hopefully, listen. We'll... We're doing this because we tip yeah. is coming up, and we need to like right. you know get in on that. D- we... Don't visit us. No, just visit the city. Just visit the city, and make sure to uh, become a Patreon subscriber <laughs> and to visit all the things that we do. But don't come speak to us. Yeah. <laughs> also, we expect the episode to be retweeted by Tiff. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we want. You know, Toronto on film. What does we, it mean? We haven't got a lot of support from Tiff. No, they didn't even uh, retweet the episode we did on Tiff. Well. We <laughs> No, we do need them. Retweet us. Look at all the followers they have, man. We're playing to their games. It doesn't matter. They'll retweet this Gerard Damiano episode. (laughs) Yeah, Gerard Damiano. (laughs) All right. So until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So it's the Important Cinema Club uh, Back Matter People That Have Passed Away (laughs) section. Celebrity Death Watch. Yep. If you had Peter Fonda on your Deadpool, he, he is it gone. recently passed away. Someone that most people, when they heard his name, went, oh, didn't he die years ago? Oh, I didn't think that. I was aware that he was alive because when he died, I, I, I felt kind of sad when he died mm. because it, it's it, one of those things where like, okay, that whole generation is going to die now. Yep. Uh, your Nicholson's, your Beatty's. Nicholson is going to live <laughs> um, beyond everybody yeah. else somehow. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> look like he's taking good care of himself. <laughs> I know, but it's the opposite. That slovenly lifestyle. Did you see that amazing Onion article that, like, people have screen grabbed it so it looks real where it says Nicholson um, drops chili on courtside? Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I thought it was real. <laughs> So believable. Um, yeah, and Peter Fonda, uh, an actor who hasn't been in many, um, I would say, major works lately. Uh, not not lately, but like he pops up every to now Yuma, and Yuma, I think, is uh, the last... Wild Hogs. Wild Hogs. Was he in Easy Rider 2? I was told just yesterday yes. that he was in it briefly, <laughs> which I was stunned to hear. Was it a Bruce Lee style, like a photo, or a God of Gamblers, like, stock footage from another movie? I don't know. Maybe he Skyped in his cameo. I'm surprised Peter Fonda never showed up in a Frank D'Angelo movie. I'm very shocked that didn't happen. But uh, hey, I don't want to make fun of Peter Fonda because I like Peter Fonda. And he was in all the eras that we liked. Not only was he part of New Hollywood, but he was also part of the Corman era right before that. I mean, The Trip. Yeah, The Trip. Classic film. Yeah, drugs are bad if that ending that was imposed by AIP means <laughs> anything. And of course, Easy Rider. You know, yeah. Great. Is he in The Terror? 
I believe no, no, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson's in the terror. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Peter Fonda was the one who introduced Roger Corman to LSD. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, what a legacy. (laughs) I mean, I remember, of course, seeing Peter Fonda like ten years ago on those late night infomercials for. Uh, did you oh, ever God. see these? If you were up watching TV, the man just passed away at like 3 a.m. I'm, I'm saying this out of love because I do like Peter Fonda. Yeah, it'd be on at 3 a.m. and it'd be one of those CD compilations of like you know uh, swinging tunes from the 60s or something. <laughs> Is he like dancing? No, but he he'd like have a leather jacket and he'd be in front of like you know a mystery machine, kind of like a shag and wagon <laughs> thing. Wait, wasn't Peter Fonda the villain in Nick Cage's Ghost Rider film? Yes, he was. Oh God. Um. Uh, yeah, and there'd be like lava lamps and shit, <laughs> yeah. and he'd be like. Hey, I'm Peter Fonda. The 60s were a time of flower power, doing your own thing, oh, and revolution. And that's what we're here to celebrate with swinging sounds of the 60s. I want to see them release like the the Orson Welles style outtakes of those like sessions where he's like, ah, oh, fuck it. Why am I doing this? This is bullshit. Throwing the glasses to the ground. I mean, he has a massive body of work that is undeniable yeah. that has left an impact. An easy rider. You know, changed the world. Yeah. So somebody else passed away, and that's animator Richard Williams. An animator that was very prolific in commercials and other short form stuff. But when it came to feature films, didn't do that much stuff in the sense that, like, he was that good. Well, he's most famous, I think, for two things. Yes. One of them is the animation on Roger Rabbit. People point out that, like, it could not have been done the way that it was if it wasn't for Richard Williams. I mean, he wrote the textbook on animation. Like, when you would start an animation class, you would get his, like, how to animate book. And he was a guy that, and it was his downfall as well, is that he did not believe in doing anything that wasn't one frame of animation per one frame of film. That's how he animated everything. And he was also a master of perspective because when um, Robert Zemeckis was making Who Framed Roger Rabbit, All the animators told him, listen, you got to lock the camera down. That's the only way we can animate it. And Richard Williams was like, those people are just lazy. I can work with perspective. Do whatever you want and I'll figure it out. The camera can move all over the place and they will feel like they are in that moment. Well, he certainly succeeded. I mean, I think Roger Rabbit is still unsurpassed. As far as anime, yeah, Yeah. 100%. And the other thing that he's famous for is for The Thief and the Cobbler. Which I've never seen, but it has that reputation or had as this legendary folly. That he worked for years and years and years and like he had production money, but he blew past it because he was still working on it. And this was a Disney production, right? Don't believe it was. Or was. well, they put it out eventually. No, they did. No, the okay. people that put it out was, I believe it was Miramax, and it went direct to cereal boxes. Remember when cereal oh, boxes God, had yeah. DVDs in them? Yeah, I believe that's where it premiered. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the Thief and the Cobbler was a movie that Richard Williams worked on endlessly, and thankfully, some super fans has spent decades putting together like the master version, thanks to work prints that showed up on Emule at one point. Hmm. Nobody knows where they came from, and the available versions. I, I haven't watched probably the newest version the problem is it feels like what it is something that somebody worked decades on Mm -hmm. so it's like not particularly funny because it's the simple kind of like slapstick gags drawn in the most insane possible way the film like the main character the thief he always has like 50 flies buzzing over his head no matter where he moves and they're all individually animated wow. <laughs> yeah. and like that was like the film's downfall but hopefully I mean supposedly Richard Williams was very protective of the film which is why it never got any kind of release 
I feel like Blu-ray companies are like chomping at the bit to like put it out in some form, like even Criterion or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, Richard Williams, an amazing animator whose the work that he worked the longest for wasn't completed, but I think people will remember it. 